the connection between vitamin E, selenium, and prostate cancer, does it lower the risk? And a lot of the questions with such connection is derived from the SELECT trial, which is a study published in early 2000s with the primary author being my guest today, Dr. Eric Klein. Dr. Klein is currently retired from his position as chair of urology at Cleveland Clinic. He is doing fabulous work in genetic testing for all cancers with a company called Grail. We discussed today the, the association between vitamin E and selenium. And more importantly, why was synthetic vitamin E used for this study, which we know that mixed to cough rolls is probably the best form of vitamin E. And as it relates to selenium, why was selenomethionine used as opposed to selenized yeast, which is has numerous seleno, selenium compounds in it? We discussed his one-year adventure at Stanford uh, University and the Distinguished Korea Institute, which is a fabulous program at Stanford for those that are retired so that with, uh, so that they can learn more about wellness, community, and purpose. Wonderful program. And we discussed the evolution of prostate cancer from when he started in the late 1980s till today. My conversation with Dr. Eric Klein on vitamin E, selenium, prostate cancer, and more. Let's go. Welcome to the Dr. Geo Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Geo, where it is my intention, my goal, my purpose to help you with your prostate health and how to live better with age. A pleasure to have uh, Dr. Eric Klein here. Eric, um, I, I think this might be the first time I ever refer to you as Eric. And the reason for that is because A, you're senior to me. Um, B, you know, I hold you in the highest respect as it relates in the field of urology, prostate cancer, and everything you've done. So I've always referred to you as Dr. Klein. I think my mother, if she listens to this podcast, she'll be very disappointed that I'm referring to someone senior by their first name. But, you know, hopefully she'll, she'll get over let's, it. Let's start a new tradition. <laughs> that's that's absolutely fine. So this is the first time. Um, such a pleasure to have you on. Um, you know, it's almost like, wow, I feel like I've made it. I have Eric Klein on. So that's it. I don't have to do another podcast episode ever again. Um, thank you for being on. Thanks for having me. Really pleased Thanks. to be here. My pleasure. Um, let's start with your career. You were uh, ch chief and chair at the Department of Urology at Cleveland Clinic for um, about 15 13 years. years. 13 About years? 13 oh, years, yeah. I was close. Um, one of the, you know, top urologists in prostate cancer in the country, I've written, you know, excellent papers, your research, um, have done, um, um, I, I, if I had to guess how many prostatectomies you've done, would I be off if I say 4,000? Yes. You've done less or more yeah, than close. that? More. No, more. That's um, my whole surgical career. I, you know, but when I started as a youngster, I mm -hmm. did other urologic malignancies too. So when I retired, mm -hmm. I tallied it up. I did about 10,000 major operations in my career. About 7,000 were, were prostatectomies. <laughs> I, I was only off by about half, about 50%. <laughs> um, so you've, you've seen what, where you've seen how 
prostate cancer diagnosis and treatment has evolved throughout the years. Tell me about what what have you noticed? How in my mind? So I've been in pro, working prostate cancer from a holistic perspective. Uh, I'm I'm coming on 20 years, which is uh, it sounds like a lot, but relative to you and others, is not that much. What? How has it evolved? Um, it seems to be in a very favorable way with the technology in terms of being able to target um, um, to target actual lesions and not do like blind biopsies. Um, as a natural doctor who I live a natural lifestyle, I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to have surgery for anything. I don't want to be poked. I don't want any, you know, anything like that. But when I step back and look at things objectively and look at my patients after a prostatectomy, most patients, particularly if they go to high-end um, urologists, it's like, wow, this is pretty remarkable. I mean, I think Adam Kibble sends some of his patients home same day if their surgery is done early enough. Yes. It's unbelievable how far. And then I got, and now I can tell patients, look. I understand you don't want to prostatect me. I don't want to prostatect me. But let me tell you what I see. You know, two months down the line, you're pretty much almost exactly like you are right now with very little symptoms, uh, maybe a little leakage, maybe not even that, um, and so forth. So it's remarkable how you guys do what you do. It's To me, it's artistic. To me, it's like, how do you get this right? Remove an organ, connect two other tissues. And within a short period of time, you know, you're kind of back to normal. So what has been your, your experience and your, um, your observations throughout the years as it relates to prostate cancer? Yeah, it's, it's really remarkable. When I started, prostatectomy was a nine-day hospital stay. It was one day prior to surgery, surgery, and then everybody stayed for a week for no reason, really. And um, it was two to four units of blood and three weeks with a catheter and months of recovery and that sort of thing. And now, as you pointed out, in many centers, it's outpatient surgery. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the most remarkable things I've seen is the evolution in robotic surgery. And there is a brilliant robotic surgeon at Cleveland Clinic named Jihad Kayuk, who was an early adopter of the single port uh, robot and has been doing transvesical single port prostatectomies as an outpatient uh, for, I don't know, two years now, something like that, catheter for three days, and people are pretty much back to normal two or three weeks later. I mean, that's really a remarkable evolution. Mm -hmm. And then there, I, I and hope the, to have Jihad on to talk about simple prostatectomies. I keep pinging yeah. him, and I think I'm just pestering him a little too much. Yeah. So maybe you could nudge him as a, his ex-boss. Can you ping Jihad for me and uh, have him sure. uh, so you, he can – because I think I saw one of his videos on simple prostatectomy on yes. YouTube, and I was like, wow, yes. this is amazing. I have it his cell remarkable. phone number. I say, hey, this is great. And, and it is remarkable. So I, I'm really trying to get the best of the best on my podcast if I can. Yes. Um, so anyway, I would appreciate that. But go ahead with your, um, your so that's one thing. About how I mean, far we come along. Focal therapy is very, very interesting, and um, I think there's a lot to learn still. I think. Generally speaking, the advocates of focal therapy have been a little too enthusiastic about who they're treating, just like the advocates of robotic surgery were a little too enthusiastic at the beginning. And it's a, that's a typical of 
all new technology. And with time, we have refined the selection criteria and using MRI and targeted biopsy and so forth to figure out who might actually benefit. So that's remarkable. When I started my career again, PSA had just come along. I became a faculty member in 1989, just as PSA hit the market. So our clinics were filled with newly diagnosed prostate cancer most of which was locally advanced and metastatic at the beginning. And in fact, when I was a resident, the commonest surgery we did for surgery was bi- for prostate cancer, rather, was bilateral orchiectomy. And five years after PSA was introduced, we saw this huge stage shift so that the rate of metastatic disease at diagnosis fell from 50% to 5%. Hmm. And that fueled everything we did in prostate cancer and all the technical advances, and everybody who did lots of prostatectomies got better and better at them. I think biologically, the big shift has been the recognition that um, not every prostate cancer needs to be treated. And so the emergence of active surveillance in recent years, I think, has really been terrific. And the advocates for that, Laurie Klotz and Bal Carter and many others who have mm-hmm contributed to that field um, have done us a service and done patients a service by pointing out to us how many people we need not operate on. So um, I think men with prostate cancer should be optimistic. If you then move into the metastatic space, you see all the new things that are there and how we see Mm -hmm. patients with metastatic disease living for years instead of months. Again, when I started my career, the median survival for metastatic disease was 18 months, and now it's measured in years. And you know, PSMA radio ligand therapy looks very exciting. So it's an exciting time, actually, to be in prostate cancer. Sure is. Uh, for the listener, orchiectomies that uh, uh, Dr. Klein was referring to, that's removal of the testicles. That was the primary form. Was it the primary form of treatment back in the day? Uh, yeah, for, absolutely. Uh, absolutely, because the, the only alternative was oral estrogen. Yeah. Which caused, right. um, you know, which had a risk of um, thrombo thromboembolic disease and before yeah, we realized and, and also um, cardiac disease and so mm-hmm. uh, before we realized to reduce the dose so that was my career started before injectables came along LHRH agonists and antagonists before mm-hmm. androgen receptor blockers came along so yeah before your luprons and your enzalutamides and all these things that are available right. now it was like you just you just removing uh, the testicles you know and it's you know that's a uh, what a trade-off, right? Uh, yes. Ima- you know, it's like women removing their breasts. It's like, yes. you know, you know, psychologically, it mu- it must have been rough for some of these men to, you know, really remove their manhood. At least that's the that's how they would feel. I imagine. Absolutely. I used to tease people yeah. and say, "You'd rather probably have a shot because most men are attached to their testicles." <laughs> And their yeah, testicles and penises for for sure. Yes, uh, and that and that liquid that you know obviously affected their ability to function sexually and all these things. Amazing. Um, just recently, I've noticed that um, not not that recently. So I follow you on Twitter. So I um, I stalk you on Twitter, <laughs> and uh, and I saw you did something remarkable. So once you retired from Cleveland Clinic. You went to Stanford University, and you went there to kind of. We were talking before recording that my my goal for my kids, who one one is about to go to college, the other is going to college next year, is not to focus so much on majoring in anything, to focus more on developing certain skills, 
and to focus more on figuring out who they are and find out who they are as pre- as people and as humans and you know maybe look into the intersection of disciplines how everything is actually connected economy economics to biology to you know art to you know that's kind of my guidance to them and we'll see if they if they actually will listen they're good kids you did that towards the end of your career <laughs> where you went to Stanford and so tell us about your the, the 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 courses or the program that they have at Stanford for retirees i think that's very unique i've never heard of such a thing yeah it's really a remarkable program um invented by uh, a former medical school dean at Stanford Phil Pizzo mm-hmm. who's a brilliant guy and i'll tell you about him for a minute and sure you because it informs your understanding of the program he um was born catholic in the bronx and I love him uh, already as a, a, as a, as a, a bronx guy had a career at NIH as a pediatric infectious disease doc and various other things and became dean at the medical school. And he is 78 or 79 years old now, and he is in rabbinical school. So Phil has Hmm. this wonderful view of life and what he realized in the course of his career, and I think it came to fruition when he was dean, was that people who have had intense careers of several decades, of all ages, Hmm. but of several decades, need a chance to take a breather, to refresh, um, to focus on wellness, to focus on mm. recon- to make new friends, which is hard to do when you're in your late 50s and 60s. And my wife and I were 65 when we did the program and um, to renew yourself. And so the program is called Distinguished Careers Institute. To my daughter's delight, mom and dad, <laughs> mom and dad had to write essays and had to be interviewed <laughs> to get accepted to the program. It's a competitive process. <laughs> and uh, we moved to Palo Alto, and the program has three pillars to it. It's wellness, community, and purpose. And the wellness part is to give people who have not paid attention to their wellness, physical and otherwise, an opportunity to participate in all sorts of wellness programs that are part of this particular program and across the university and access to all the athletic facilities and that sort of thing. Um, the community part was connecting with 35 amazing classmates who were arranged in age from the late 40s to the late 70s and who had unique and interesting careers in all sorts of endeavors. In fact, we were only one of three physicians in the program, and everybody else had been mostly in business, nonprofits, um, people in software um, who had become wealthy and dedicated their lives afterwards to doing social good. So, for example, we had one colleague who was an investment banker who realized after 20 years that he wasn't really accomplishing anything except making money. And he joined a school in Oakland, I think, Oakland, California, that was a magnet for cast-offs of kids who couldn't make it in regular school systems for various reasons. And he taught there for, I don't know, 10 years before joining the program. Someone else who started charter schools in various um, communities uh, around the United States, someone else who was a consultant who um, helped found and uh, promote a wonderful program in Chicago called One Million Degrees, which takes children, children, you know, high schoolers and college age kids who don't have access to the social skills and the understanding of the world that all of 
you know, people in my generation grew up with and um, have um, partnered with local universities, including, I think, even the University of Chicago to give them an opportunity. It's been a tremendously successful program. They even did a randomized controlled trial on their intervention and showed how much benefit it worked, it, it added. So getting to know those people was terrific. And these are people who live from all over the world. And we have a whole new set of 35 friends all over the world that we would never have met before. And then the mm-hmm. last part of it, the purpose part of it, the idea was going into it is that you want to learn something that you might find useful on the other side of the program to further your career or start a new career and that sort of thing. And um, I had intended a particular purpose pathway. But when I got there, I did what you the advice you gave your daughter. I just took courses all over the university, I took a lot of courses in the Graduate School of Business, uh, the Law School, Undergraduate Humanities, um, and uh, only one course in the Law School, I mean, in the Medical School. And I had a great time, and so did my wife. And, uh, you know, just this opportunity that we talked about before, this uh, company that I'm working for came along because I had been consulting for them. And so my career has taken a pivot after all of that. It's been wonderful. My favorite course was memoir writing. That's not something I ever would have thought, but one of my, there's a Mm -hmm. wonderful professor named John Evans, who's written several books, who teaches people how to write memoir. And I was never interested in that. I've written lots of scientific papers, but one of my classmates insisted that we take it together. So thank you, Julie. And um, the class was a series of prompts. uh, and just to get you to write and think and that sort of thing. And it was really fun. It, it tapped into a creativity that I didn't know I had. So it was a wonderful, remarkable. Way, was wonderful, wonderful way to cap a career. I am far from retired, and I feel like I want to do that program. <laughs> yes. <laughs> How long is the program? It's one year. It's one year on campus. People who live, we had a lot of our classmates. Not a, not a, not a bad campus, Eric, no, it's to be beautiful. on for a year. It's beautiful. Many of my classmates lived, you know, in Northern California and commuted and so forth. But we did it whole hog. We, we left our house empty. We moved to Palo Alto. We rented an apartment in downtown Palo Alto. We walked to campus every day and walked back. And that was a big part of the wellness part for me. And it was just a great experience. I'm extraordinarily happy for you and your wife. Um, and it's something to, I think I'm going to, you know, a big part of uh, the, the, what we try to do with, uh, in air quotes, a Dr. Geo uh, brand. Um, I always you know, I feel uncomfortable saying it that way as a third person, but you know what I mean, um, is, and you heard it here in the introduction, is your prostate health and how to live better with age. Very interested in a conversation, mostly for men, because yes. that's the area that I feel like I can um, help the most. How to live better with uh, with age? What does that mean? For me, and I've seen thousands of patients now that come for, to me for wellness and holistic care. For me, that means that how, when I turn 60, how can 60 be better than 50? How can 70 be better than 60? How can 80 be better than 70? Many listening would say, well, come on, you're being silly. It's just, you know, you're just living in, in the clouds somewhere is impossible. To my research and what I see clinically is definitely not impossible. Literally, patients that are coming to me, um, and well, I don't want to take all the credit. They have to do the work, and it's probably despite of me, I have to be honest, or whatever I recommend. The bottom line is, 
when you look at their fitness level, when you looked at, at their VO2 max to measure um, cardiovascular, cardiovascular fitness, when, you look, when I look at their body composition to measure muscle versus fat, most of these men in their senior years are actually in better health yes. than they were when they were younger. And when does that plateau? I don't really know. I'm sure it will. I, I, you know, at some point it will plateau. But that steep decline, which is all I'm trying to prevent for myself yes. and for people, yes, is you know when I want it to plateau at some point, not a steep decline. Why? Because all I've seen is as men get older, no one even at 90, 85 says, oh, yeah, I'm ready to go. Yeah, no, I don't want to enjoy life. Uh, no, I don't. It's okay that I cannot move around. I, no one ever said, I've never heard any man say that. They accept right. their situation, but they're not happy with it. Right. So this is a major part of my mission and my work is helping men live better with it. This sounds like an amazing program for, <laughs> for, it is. for people, obviously, not only men, to, to live along those lines. Yeah, it is. It's uh it was a it was a great way to pivot after retiring. I mean, I have the the uh the urologist who was the residency program director when I joined the Cleveland Clinic in 1981 as an intern is in his 80s. He's still practicing medicine. Hmm. And that's the generation that I watched and I realized after a long time that I had accomplished what I had hoped to accomplish. The department was thriving. It was filled with really young, energetic, bright people. And um, the stresses and strains of practicing medicine in today's era are only getting worse. And I thought it was time to step away, and this would be a great time to... Um, to do a program like that. When I had first heard about it, I actually heard about it from Ila Skinner's husband, who is an attorney, mm -hmm. who had been um, in one of the first two classes, I think. The program's about 10 years old now. And I put it in the back of my mind and said, yeah, this would be great. And then the other thought in terms of wellness, I'll give you this thought. I had two colleagues early in my career who started their careers with me, who after about 10 years left medicine, so this was in the 90s, around 2000 or so, mm. to join a biotech firm in the era before biotech was big business. And they joined mm. a company called Biogen. Um, and we all thought, those of us in that little group thought that was a little risky. I mean, they had put a lot into medical school. They had successful practices, successful research careers, and that sort of thing. And they really thrived in that environment. And they showed me that even as a physician, you can have a second career. And I've had that thought in my mind for since then, you know, when the opportunity was right. And to get to your point about wellness, two things have really sort of flipped the switch for me to be better off than I was when I was practicing the last few years. One is the, um, the stress of having to manage a big department is gone now. And the second part is I found something that I'm really passionate about and completely mentally engaged in now that gives me the same kind of excitement and pleasure that I had um, practicing medicine. And that's my second career now. And so you can think of it that way. Um, you know, at some point, I love it. At some point it'll stop working and, you know, take a more leisurely pace. And, uh, or, or, but, or not. It depends. Yeah, right? not. You have options. You have exactly. options. Exactly the point. And that is a key issue. <laughs> I think listeners really, if there's one thing that you take away from this conversation is think about the future and think about um, that you have options in today's world. I mean, my parents didn't have options, right? They, mm. 
They went through World War II. They got married. Mm-hmm. They settled in the suburbs. They had kids. And they retired, and you know, and one of them went to Florida after my father died. My mom went to Florida the last twenty years and just socialized. But we have options. There's so many. There's less ageism than there used to be, and there are so many opportunities to do intellectual things that don't require the same sort of physical stamina that you might have when you're thirty or thirty-five. Um, you may know uh, Jay Shaw at Stanford, uh, yes. urologist, oncology. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. I had him on. It's not published yet, so it might be published when uh, your this uh, conversation is published. We really spoke about, you know, he's a bladder cancer expert, and we mm-hmm. spoke very little about that and more about how to prevent burnout yes. as a practitioner. Yes. And that was just a fascinating conversation um, that we will not talk about because I, we can, you and I can talk for for hours, and I want to be respectful of your time. Yeah. But but that was a conversation. Is how. Can we do what we do and prevent uh, burnout? Um, the other, Phil Perazio, who's at Penn. Yes, yes. He has this whole thing going on, Zen, um, Zen operating in Zen. So it's like this mindfulness as you go through this process. Yes. This mindfulness of how to keep yourself well mentally. Yes. Primarily, but also physically, and and not. Um, so th- there's a whole process there, and. Uh, so I am, we're trying to build something, uh, Jay and Phil, um, I, don't, I don't even think they know that yet, but we're trying to build something where, what can we do, even at the AUA meetings, can there be a section on, uh, you know, uh, preventing burnout or physician heal thyself kind of thing? You know, what are the tools? We know the system, We know, and it's not, look, uh, people have kids and so they're not going to retire, right? Um, right. No, should they? Many of them, most of them right. love what they do. Yes, of course. How do you do what you do, do at a high level without sacrificing your mental yes. and physical health? That's the question yes. to, that we want to answer. So. Yes. And I still enjoyed practicing the medicine and the patients and the, yeah. the youngsters, yeah. the young trainees. We, when, I, when I stepped away, and it was hard to step away from that, but it was the right move for me. We're going to segue into the select trial which um, early 2000, 2004, 2005, a couple of papers were published. You were the primary author. Um, the select trial being uh, selenium vitamin E prevention trial for prostate cancer. And I'm going to touch a little bit before we get into that study on wellness and your wellness. So I remember, so of course, I was a youngster in the field in this whole, there, there was no holistic urology. Then there was no, you know, integrative urology, but I'm, I'm, this is what I was into. And I'm answering all these questions and I'm like, who is this Dr. Klein guy? I mean, I'm having all these questions on, oh, will vitamin E, you know, promote cancer, selenium. Then I look you up. I was like, this guy doesn't look like he should be talking about nutrition. <laughs> It's true. I was you, I was over nutrition. Why, why why is this guy talking about nutrition and what vitamins anyone should take <laughs> when you were probably I'm guessing a hundred pounds overweight, and then I meet Close you coming. years later, and you're slimmer, and so and we start talking about wellness and your um, wellness approach and your lifestyle, healthier lifestyle. For a second, wow, this is amazing. So h- how have how has your health? Uh, transformed throughout the years. You were telling me before we started recording, I, I wasn't only, you know, obese and big, but I was really in, my health was not great. 
Yes. So what happened? What was the trigger that you said, I need to change this? Because for a lot of people, they don't even know how to start. Yes. You did something. You went through something in your head. You said, I'm going to do X. And then you start, did your wellness and you lost, I don't know, a lot of weight and you kept it off. And you look like you're in bed. This whole idea of you know living better with age. And as you get yes. older, you get, this is you, unless I'm missing something. This is you now. No, no. You're in better shape than you were 20 years ago. No question. What happened? You know, it started, it was a multitude of factors. It started, um, my real focus on wellness started about 16 years ago. And prior to that, my weight had been up and down my whole life. I think I lost 50 pounds twice in my life before that time. But I had just become chairman of the Institute. Um, mm. I was stressed. Um, I didn't have a good release. I don't play tennis or golf and I'm, mm. I'm introverted and didn't have that many friends, really any friends outside of medicine. And so it was all just mm. sort of focused on that. And as I traveled to meetings and so forth, um, and had some downtime, I said, all these hotels have these nice gyms. I should go try it out. And so I started running <laughs> and I mm. found that I liked it. And you did. I did. So you and did not feel heavy, the huff oh, and puff, the out of shape. Oh, yeah. Well, that yeah. did not discourage you from doing it again, which no. happens to most people. No, it didn't. I mean, w one of the triggers was a vacation that my family and I, my, my daughter was young at the time. We were hiking in New Zealand and I want to, I want to say mountains, but they were giant hills. And uh, we were on the top of one one morning and I was huffing and puffing and I was tachycardic and hard to breathe. And I thought, gee, I'm going to need a helicopter to get me down. And I looked at my daughter and I just said, in that moment, I just have too much to live for and I want to be around to see her grow up. And that was probably the biggest trigger. So I just started running and um, it was hard at first, but I found it to be a great stress reliever mm -hmm. and I started losing weight and um, I started eating better and and for all the ha habits that I learned as a child. I mean, my parents grew up in the depression and so mm -hmm. Having mm -hmm. a big meal was always a big, you know, and th their ratings <laughs> of restaurants were how much food did they give you, not how <laughs> tasty right. was it was. That's not, what I grew quali up. not quality of food. Exactly right. That's what I grew up with. And I changed that. And then I decided after having, you know, I'd already, it was halfway through my career after having already written a lot and worked at home a lot on weekends and that sort of thing. I thought, you know, my health is really the most important thing here. I'm going to stop working at night. And I'm going to focus on my health. And so it got to the point now that for me, the best part of the day is running. And I try and do it first thing in the morning because that gives me the freedom to do whatever I want the rest of the day. And if I don't run in the morning, I just feel this kind of heaviness that, gee, you haven't, you haven't fulfilled the obligation, the promise that you made yourself to be healthy and so forth. And so mm. there's, a, there's a book written by a tire, retired military guy called Make Your Bed. Which is about, it. yeah, right? So you know the love book it. and the story. So love it's the it. same idea. And that's how I feel about running. I do that. My whole day set. Doesn't matter what happens. So I, I, I got addicted to it. I really like it now. If I, if I miss it, if I don't run for a few days, I miss it. I also have a, uh, a very sophisticated weight machine in my basement now. It's called an Inspire M3 that allows me oh. to do re resistance training. And so I do that twice a week and it's all good. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. So I'm doing all so the right So you do things. a combination of re re resistant training, which, by the way, that makes me really happy. Yeah. As someone who um, does a lot of research on the topic and yes. tries to kind of be more prescriptive with what I recommend. Yes. Um, uh, weight resistant uh, exercises 
in- crucially important as as one gets older. So that I wasn't gonna. Uh, I, I don't go around preaching. I wasn't going to say, Eric, all you're doing, I care about you, Eric. All, all you're doing is running. Please, you got to get in yes. the weight room. I wasn't going to do that. But now that you mentioned yes. it, I'm yes. very happy that, that you're, that you're doing that. Um, what's your, what was the, you can, you cannot out exercise a bad, uh, eating approach. So you did something dietarily. What was that for yes. you? Yeah. Um, it was, um, changing my eating habits. I mean, for decades, starting in college, I skipped breakfast because I wanted to sleep late and I didn't sure. miss it. And even when I was a resident, we used to do eight or 10 hour cystectomies and that sort of thing. I didn't eat. I wouldn't drink anything. And the first time I had to urinate was eight o'clock at night. And, you know, over over the long term, I felt less well doing that. So I started eating breakfast, having just having yogurt mm-hmm. and fruit for breakfast mm-hmm. and then eliminating um, you know, limiting what I snacked on and just trying to limit my intake to meals. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm lucky to be married to the woman I'm married to for in- an incredibly long list of good reasons. But one of them is she's a great cook and she loves to cook. Uh, and so yeah. she's been that, trying to she's been trying to keep my daughter and me healthy. And so it's all good. It is amazing. Happy to hear. Nutrition select trial. So here was, so, you know, I've studied a nutritional medicine for, for a long, long time and see, look at the nuances of how these nutrients actually work in your body. Um, and of course, then I've honed in in prostate health and prostate cancer for a while and try to figure those things out. Correct me if I am wrong, and this, this has been a while, so you, I'm not going to fact check you, uh, you know, and, okay. uh, but you, for, for some recollection of memory that you may have. Studying selenium came about from the, what's called the Nutritional Prevention and Cancer Trial, NPC. Correct. That was, um, Clark was the primary author right. who wrote a paper, and they were trying to figure out, does it reduce the risk of cancer? Uh, I, I don't know if they would focus on skin cancer. Skin yeah, cancer. Skin cancer. Yeah. This is 1996, yes. roughly. Paper was published in JAMA. And what that paper showed was that uh, they were looking at selenium and, the, and its effect on the potential prevention of cancer. The primary focus was skin cancer. That it didn't do a whole lot in preventing skin cancer, but as a secondary outcome, there was a significant uh, reduction in the uh, diagnosis of prostate cancer, which sparked a lot of interest. I remember at the time, early 2000s, when I graduated from school in about early 2000s, I, oh, you know, first thing, um, 200 micrograms of selenium. I mean, that's the first thing people were just blurting out of their mouth um, when uh, for, for prostate cancer and for prostate health. So that's that study, and that probably sparked the interest to, for the SELECT trial. The vitamin E component um, came about from roughly 1998, I want to say, the ATBC trial. This is the right. um, alpha tocopherol beta carotene trial that looked at a, a lung cancer, I want to say. Uh, uh, it right. wasn't focused on prostate cancer. Correct. But what they saw was that, uh, there again, there was a sick, mostly like 30% decrease in prostate cancer in the right. arm that took vitamin E. Yeah, that's correct. Then you have the, so then then you have the select trial, which uh, you were a big part of. By the way, 
I started at Columbia with Aaron Katz in early 2000s and the trial was going on. And that's that was my way in. Remember, I'm a naturopathic functional medicine doctor. I'm not an MD. Uh, I had strong interest in urology, did everything in urology. So I was like, I don't even know if I'm going to get hired at Columbia. I did. The reason I got hired at Columbia was partially to cut toenails <laughs> to send them to the lab yes, yes. so that for them to because they were part to, of the select study there were to, to, me, to measure selenium to, levels yeah. to measure selenium which is uh you know is a good way to measure uh, better than serum but there i quickly found out that i, I don't want to do this kind of research ever again i'd rather interpret and implement than than be involved in uh, writing grants and so forth but that was not a happy but you know as a youngster i'm like i'm just i'm just happy to be at columbia with all these great uh, urologists and all right i'll clip some toenails no problem we did a couple of other studies on different supplements as well so that was my role there my understanding this is a a very expensive study well i mean is elegant in terms of design if you really want to know what works i mean there's nothing about correlation this is like causation um you know fifth over fifty thousand participants uh nationwide expensive study you can talk about the study as uh, you know, and you take it in any direction that you like to take it, Eric. Here's my question: The NPC trial looked at not selenomethionine when, which that's what they looked at in the select trial. They looked yes. at this selenium yeast yes. component that it just works differently in the body when you look at it. It works. I mean, it's, it has it's primarily selenomethionine, but it has other. Yes forms yes. and compounds of selenium, selenocysteine uh, and seleno whatever else. So it's, like, it's more like a compound of different selenium types, more so than the standardization in selenomethionine. That's my first question. Why was only selenomethionine used in the select trial? Because many argue, and I've made the argument, it's, like, it's not the same selenium and things do work differently in the body. The ATBC trial with alpha-tocopherol the amount that they used in that study of just alpha-tocopherol, so for the listener, and they, many of the listeners have I've written about this many times, where vitamin E is a family of tocopherols, it's alpha-tocopherol, gamma-tocopherol. Um, most studies show, particularly in two, the year 2000, actually out of Hopkins, correlation, not causation. They saw that only those that had higher gamma-tocopherol had more protection of prostate cancer than those yes. that... Uh, right. So, so gamma tocopherol plays a huge role in the select trial, uh, and in in the ATBC trial, they use fifty units of only alpha tocopherol. Right. In the select trial, they use four hundred units, so eight times as much right. of just alpha tocopherol, not the mixed, not with the gamma. So, take this in any direction that you want, and maybe some overview of the trial. But definitely, I want to know why were these different compounds used? Because I feel. Like we miss an opportunity, honestly. Look, in general, no one vitamin cures cancer. All right. Like I don't get into that. That's not the conversation. There's no one vitamin, whether it's selenium or vitamin E or vitamin D. It doesn't work that way. So uh, that's not what I'm aiming for. I'm aiming for there are physiological benefits in most cases, particularly people with deficiencies in selenium, that it, it has antioxidant benefits, um, immune boosting benefits, and so forth, that I, you know, I would find that that would have some benefits. So I feel like we perhaps have missed an opportunity with a very good design trial to see if gamma tocopherol, mixed tocopherol vitamin E works in patients 
uh, to, uh, for prevention of prostate cancer, and if selenized yeast potentially works in this regard. So take it away in whatever direction you'd like. So long answer that I'll do in two parts. The first is to answer your it's specific question. So don't worry. Yeah, it's a long <laughs> I'll answer your specific questions first and, and then um, give you sort of a bigger picture overview of what we should have learned from the prior trials in doing select. So the choice for selenomethionine was based on um, group expert opinion. We convened a number of experts in selenium biology, twice as a matter of fact, and uh, queried them. And the ultimate decision on selenomethionine was based on two things. One was that the predominant species of selenium in the selenized yeast was selenomethionine. It was about 70%. And the second was in the manufacturing process, there was huge batch-to-batch variability in selenized yeast. And the brain trust um, together thought that um, pure selenomethionine would be a better choice. So that's why we picked selenomethionine. And 200 micrograms, I think, was roughly the equivalent that was used in the NPC trial. For the alpha-tocopherol, um, we chose alpha-tocopherol to be um, to, to maintain... units. Yeah, to, the, the reason we chose alpha was mm -hmm. to maintain fidelity with the ATBC trial because mm -hmm. the intervention mm -hmm. that showed a reduced risk of prostate cancer was with alpha-tocopherol. Mm -hmm. So that's why it was chosen. And the reason the dose went up to 400 milligrams is that there was a lot of data that suggests that that was a safe dose without adverse effects. And so that's why that was chosen, the idea being if a little is good, then... More is better. More is better. So but that wasn't the, so in the ATBC trial, they used 50 units. So yes. I'm wondering, so it wasn't directly direct. I guess they looked at the preponderance of research and they said, well, it yes. would make sense to for 500. Yeah. And let me uh, just say, alpha, alpha yeah, yeah mm -hmm. I, it, it was it was mostly a safety concern. I mean, it was mm -hmm. not a concern. It was we know that taking 400 is safe and if 50 is good, 400 must be better. That was the thinking. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that's why those were chosen um, to get to the. To get to the biology of this, it turns out that no matter how what you ingest as far as selenium goes, it has to be incorporated into, I think it's um, selenizing cysteine residues in muscle. Mm -hmm. And until you saturate that, there's not much that's bioavailable to go to other organs. And it turns out the experts told us it doesn't matter what the form of selenium is that you put in your mouth at what happens after that's metabolized. And for alpha tocopherol, all the tocopherols, they are interchanged with other forms of tocopherol. So you can take alpha tocopherol, it will raise your gamma levels. But let me say, we did talk about that. And in the end, Alan Crystal, an epidemiologist at um, Fred Hutch, um, had done the, uh, the prospective study where we collected blood to see what the effect of gamma was on prostate cancer risk. And it turned out, with prospective samples, that levels of gamma tocopherol had no effect on the risk of prostate cancer. So, Just gamma tocopherol by itself or gamma with alpha? No, no. It was, it was um, I'm sorry, I didn't make it clear. It was levels of gamma tocopherol in the blood during the trial across the forearm. So that was placebo, alpha tocopherol alone, selenium alone, and alpha tocopherol and selenium together. So if you look at blood levels of gamma tocopherol, they do they don't have no they have no correlation with uh, risk of prostate cancer. So mm -hmm. to my mind that that issue has been settled. Um, 
which is not to say that we couldn't have done a different trial, you know, with different interventions, but the the best data available at the time was used to design the trial. So let's talk about the trial results mm-hmm. um, and what we what we should have realized to get to your point that no vitamin is going to prevent cancer. Um, the trial results were that the the trial was designed with about a little over thirty two thousand men, I think, to take these agents for seven years, and we would see what the incidence of prostate cancer was in each arm at the end. So the trial was called early at about five and a half years mm-hmm. because there was an increasing incidence of prostate cancer in the vitamin E arm. It hadn't reached statistical significance, but a futility analysis showed that even continuing for two more years was unlikely to show a benefit. So it was stopped. But we Mm -hmm. continued to follow everybody, even though the intervention was stopped. And what we found with an additional five five years of follow-up was that men who took 400 units of alpha-tocopherol actually had a 17% relative increased risk in developing prostate cancer. Mm-hmm. And there were other slight increased risks, even with selenium alone, although they weren't statistically significant. So what did we learn from that? And when you take together all the data that we have, you're right. Someone has a deficiency. Taking a supplement to solve the deficiency is beneficial. But if someone has normal levels of these agents, taking higher doses is actually detrimental. And we should have known that. If you go back to the NPC trial that tried to look at mm-hmm. whether or not selenium prevented skin cancer, it turned out at the end of the trial, you go back and read the results, it actually those who took selenium had a higher incidence of skin cancer. And if you look at the ATPC trial, men who took vitamin E had a higher incidence of lung cancer. And there was another big trial called CARAT, which was beta-carotene. Mm-hmm. Also, higher incidence of lung cancer. And In smokers, fol- yeah. Yeah, and there are folate trials that show that not only do they not prevent colon polyps, they increase your risk of getting uh, colon polyps and colon cancer. And so there's trial after trial after trial, including SELECT, that to my mind confirms the fact that, if you t- that these are biologically active substances. Vitamins are biologically active substances. They're drugs. And if you take too much of it, bad things happen. And that's what we should have realized, I think, when we designed Select, looking at the results of the prior trials, that one could say with total hindsight that the result was predictable that this would not prevent prostate cancer. For sure. Here are, so, um, as you know, I've looked at these nutrients and how the nutrients work for a long time. My take would be the following. When you start messing around with nature a little too much, you get into trouble. Yes. The uh, beta carotene study that you just um, spoke about that increased the risk of of uh, lung cancer in in a group of smokers. That's the carrot trial, I believe. Yes. You never find beta carotene alone in anything, any food or anything. Is a group of carotenoids. Right. And. Anything I've ever learned in 20 years that is that these things work together in synergy. There's a synergistic component to all these chemicals. So when you start messing around with nature and start standardizing any one component, A, you're absolutely right. That is a drug. And like any drug, there might be some benefit at a certain dosage, but there, the higher the dosage, there, there will probably be some risk that yeah. come along with it. 
Um, I never would recommend, not even before the study, uh, because it's just part of a common sense, and it's just not what you do. Beta, you know. Obviously, I'm very much everything. I'm more scientific, Eric. I think for first of all, I've had to be right. This is non-conventional doctor, Columbia University, and you know the the you know, physicians there, the faculties, people like Carl Olson, and you know uh, Dr. Benson. So I had to bring the goods. I couldn't say, well, I think vitamin C is good for flus. You know, I, I could not. I, I didn't have that luxury, nor nor is it my style. I really had to bring the goods to uh, the early days. So I'm actually more scientific, I find, than a lot of our conventional medical colleagues as it relates to natural things and natural products. So, um, but I would never think that extracting one compound would be beneficial. I would think exactly that. It's possibly that, you know, people are very much into lycopene right now for prostate cancer. Yes. And my suggestion is, it's not just lycopene. Like if you just take lycopene in it by itself, I think we're going to have problems just like we did with beta carotene and alpha tocopherol and, and all these other components. You never find, you know, almonds are very high in vitamin E. You never find alpha tocopherol in vitamin E. Actually, there's more gamma tocopherol in, in, in an almond than there is alpha tocopherol. And there's, again, a synergistic aspect to that. Um, selenium, there again, um, the full compound, the yeast is a little bit more food-like than just selenomethionine. Again, more drug-like once you start extracting, which possibly some benefits, but definitely higher risk of of, of uh, higher risk of something, uh, some adverse effect. So, I my my when people have come to me to you know design studies in the last twenty years, uh, of which I again I just don't I rather interpret and implement. That's kind of what I'm focused on. But as a look, don't try. This is not. Let's not try to look at these vitamins like drugs. I know that that's what people think they are. Um, I know that that's what people want them to be. They're not drugs. They're, they're not drugs. W the way you look at turmeric and curcumin in turmeric is the whole plant. There's 150 ingredients in it. To say that tomatoes that the active ingredient is lycopene. Well, there's another, there's a hundred other ingredients in tomatoes. Maybe it's the tomatoes, you know, the, the tomatine in tomatoes, and you have to eat it with, you know, some sort of fatty substance for it to absorb. There's a lot of components to the whole thing. So I just think that um, beta carotene select with just selenomethionine, 400 units of alpha tocopher vitamin E is an astronomical amount. I'll, typically, we would prescribe 400 units of mixed tocopherols vitamin E not 400 units of alpha tocopherol. So I can see how that can be a potential problem. I'm surprised that because uh, the studies show there's a higher increase of prostate cancer right? in the 17% uh, higher increase, increase of alpha. So I've had to tell people it's not a higher increase of vitamin E. It's an alpha, higher increase of prostate cancer in alpha tocopherol. Not because there is a difference and, and the, those details actually do matter. But what's interesting is I'm surprised that um, maybe they, there's a, some other study that I don't know about. Because again, after a certain point, if you screen enough or if you get old enough, then you're going to get prostate cancer. So I'm not that concerned about increased risk of prostate cancer. I'm focused more on increased re risk of advanced uh, prostate cancer that can be deadly. So that's yeah. kind of my take on the whole thing. Yeah, no, I, I you know, I, I agree with you on a number of levels. Um, you know, it's not that taking 
um, really high doses of alpha tocopherol means you're going to die of prostate cancer. Um, But again, it was done in an era where we thought we needed to treat every prostate cancer. But it showed an absence of benefit in terms of not preventing prostate cancer. It didn't prevent heart disease. It didn't prevent cataracts. It didn't prevent COPD. It didn't prevent any other cancers. And it didn't improve overall survival. So there's zero benefit there. But you touched on something that I think is really important. There's a brilliant, now retired, cancer prevention researcher named Frank Maskins who summarized the same thing that you just summarized, which is, and wrote about this, which is um, that taking individual supplements doesn't give you what he called the entire biologic action package that comes from these natural agents that are essential for life that you get from eating whole foods. Mm -hmm. And you're absolutely right. You pick out lycopene from tomato sauce you know, it might, that's easy to isolate and make and market, but it might just be a marker for what the real bioactive substance is. And it may be that you need the interaction of multiple substances in your diet. So, you know, the advice that I gave people is take a multivitamin if you're really into vitamins. Don't take super doses, mega doses of anything else and learn how to eat a balanced uh, diet that has the whole biologic action package, even though we don't know what it is. Eating, eating healthily is probably far more important than taking supplements. Definitely agree with that, with that statement. Here's what I called holistic but realistic. You'd be surprised. People see what a, the amount of supplements I take. And it's like, do you eat food? I mean, you, I, mean I, I take about <laughs> a lot, like 20-something twice a day. When you look at – and by the way, some of it is you would say, well, where's your research to support that you, everything you should take? How do you measure? Where's the biomarker that you're looking for that says, okay, you take this and now you feel what? What are you looking for? Okay, fair. And plus I exercise and I do other things. So how do I know, right? When you get too much into the weeds, it's like, it's like okay, you kind of, you know, it's get, get a little convoluted. But based on science, based on research, how these things work in the cell at a cellular level, because, um, you know, they're not going to, select tr- type of trials are not going to happen ever again. This is, you know, it, it was just too expensive. No real patent for these things. It's just not going to happen. Right. Um, so a lot of it is honestly a lot of, uh, yeah, some, there is research. Like I said, I present everything with research and science. Um, but, you know, randomized trials and things like there's a lot of pers- correlations and things of the sort. When you look at, for example, going back to vitamin E, we say, well, there's no benefit. I'm looking, remember, these are people, full people that I'm looking at. So one is prostate cancer, and I know that's the primary focus, but how about the benefit for brain health, the benefit for, you know, the, the, the nervous system, the benefit for, you know, prevention or lower the risk of dementia and Alzheimer's, which there's data on that. So I'm, the way I'm looking at it is, okay, first of all, I think that there might be um, based on the preponderance of research that I've seen, there might be prostate cancer benefit in mixed tocopherols with higher gamma, and especially with how the whole thing works together. Sorry for a different day. But I'm also looking at how, what other benefits are there for this? Does it reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease? Is it better for arterial health? What we know, for example, I had a few uh, cardiologists on the podcast, and they were great. He says, look, what we're trying to prevent is not cholesterol getting into the arteries because that's pretty much impossible. We're trying to prevent that cholesterol that gets into the arteries from oxidizing 
And that's where all the, you know, all hell breaks loose, right? Plaque formation, inflammation, and da da da. You know, vitamin E seems to have some ability to lower the risk of that. So, okay, fine, great. All right, Gio, but can we, why don't we get it from food? It is tough for many reasons. And I've been, you know, I've, 25 years, I've done every diet. I always say I've done every diet from, uh, from Atkins to Zone and everywhere in between, plant-based and everything. It is tough. Why? A, you don't know the nutrient density of the food that you're eating, if you're eating healthy, in air quotes. You don't know. You know, I love going to Whole Foods and seeing that the organic apple comes from New Zealand. Well, by the time that food, that apple gets to your mouth from New Zealand, it's not, is 50% less nutrient dense than it would if it was in your backyard, for example, from your backyard. So, and that's assuming that you're eating healthy, right? Hmm. The other thing is it's hard to eat healthy. Whatever is your definition of healthy for everyone, even for me. And this is what I do for a living. You know, um, my wife does a great job as well cooking for us. Um, think, you know, but not everyone has spouses like you and I, Eric. Um, so I would say that the right supplementation program for the right person is absolutely essential because of all these. It's very difficult to get all the right nutrients, even if you eat healthy. And how you define healthy, I define healthy, how the other person defines healthy, that's another. You know, healthy for a lot of people these days, Eric, is carnivore diet. No vegetables, only right. meat products all day. <laughs> That's well, healthy, I, right? So this that's, is that's not confusing. I don't think it is long term. Yeah, but I, you know, I'm open. I'm, I have, I'm open. You know, somebody come look. It cured my autoimmune disease, which is the primary people that do carnivore diets are people with autoimmune diseases, <laughs> and a bunch of them say, "Look, I cured my autoimmune." Who, who am I? You know, okay, I look. I don't know what will happen 10, 15, 20 years from now with this approach. You know, but. You know, who am I? I'm looking, I'm observing. It's not what I do. It's not what I recommend. But who, who am I? Uh, I look at the, the, the research and my experience. But anyway, long-winded story to say um, the right supplement program, you have to look at it a bit. You have to look at it, I think, less pharmaceutically, if you will. I think I just made up that word. <laughs> and more bigger picture, more holistic, more how does it work for the whole body, more of, you know, maybe less beta carotene and more mixed carotenoids. And once you have all these carotenoids, maybe they all work together better than just one component. Um, your thoughts on that whole, uh, <laughs> that whole speech? <laughs> well, I mean, certainly if you're not eating a diet that gives you the nutrients you need, then supplements make sense. Um, as a practitioner, though, of medicine, generally, I try to practice evidence-based medicine. Mm -hmm. And so the question becomes, what's your comfort level in recommending something to somebody in the absence of evidence that it's beneficial? Mm -hmm. And I think everybody, every physician and every individual has a different level of comfort with that. And so, you know, I had a colleague who was a medical oncologist who used to see patients with metastatic prostate cancer. And when the clinical trial data ran out, he would say to the patient, um, I have no clinical trial data to tell you what to do. Go home. And the patients interpreted that as, gee, I'm out of options. And he told me to go home and die. And mm -hmm. what I found lacking in that approach was 
that's the time when there's an absence of evidence that you have to turn into a human who has certain beliefs and cares about people. And you say, mm-hmm. I don't have evidence to support what, um, you know, I don't have clinical trial evidence to support what I'm going to recommend next to you. But this is what I think, based on my interpretation of the data that's out there and my experience as a physician. And that's what I wish this particular physician had told patients. And that's the attitude that you're coming in with. I mean, with which I think is good is, you know, we don't have a, we don't have a clinical trial that examined whether or not mixed tocopherols prevent prostate cancer. Could they? Sure. Sure. As the available sure. data suggests exactly. that, that that's going to be beneficial, I would I personally would say no because we looked at gamma levels in there, but but that's fine. In the absence of data, what do you do? And that's where people want someone who's more informed than they are about various things, and will keep yeah. them from doing things that are dangerous. So I'm fine with that approach in in that what circumstance. What percentage? Um, sorry. What percentage, uh, I read a paper that suggested that um, about 30% of what's practiced in medicine is evidence-based. Yes. I thought that was a low number. Yeah, yes, but it's What's probably real. No, it's probably, that's, probably, <laughs> that's probably correct. I mean, physicians have been very resistant. I mean, yeah. this is, there, there's lots written on this. There's a, a really interesting person that I met at Stanford named Robbie Pearl, who's an adjunct professor in the Graduate School of Business. He was the chief physician um, at Kaiser Permanente for 17 years, and he mm-hmm. created this huge cultural change there to get them focused on quality and did a great job. And he's written a book, the name of which I don't remember, but which I recommend, which talks about... What's the name of the author? Again, I'll put it in my show notes. Uh, Robbie Pearl, P-E-A-R-L. Okay, thanks. And I can look up the name of the book and send it to you. It's about two years old. What he wrote about was physician culture and the the guild that is that are physicians and how resistant they are to change based on lots of reasons, societal reasons mm-hmm. for why people go into medicine because they want independence and in how they think and some reasons of, gee, I sacrificed went to college. My buddy went to college. My roommate went into business and he's out making six figures already. And I'm in medical school and owing lots of student (laughs) debt. And then I have to do a residency and all of that. You know, no one's going to tell me how to do things better. Uh, And, and big observations by various people, how AI and all sorts of other technology has revolutionized the efficiency of doing business in everything except medicine. And Mm -hmm. so a lot of what is not evidence-based medicine is based on ingrained attitudes of physicians Mm -hmm. saying, I know best, I did all this work and so forth. So, and I I don't want to smear every physician, um, you know, with that, but there is that sense, that collective sense that physicians have been very resistant to all of this. And um, that's why there's not so much evidence-based medicine there. Yep. Um, thank you for expanding on that. And this is my, you know, my, uh, you know, what's, you know, what's evidence, right? And when you look at, I've spoken to several scientists and I've asked the question, what is evidence? Let me tell you what evidence would mean to me. And then, so we have this discussion. So look, randomized trial, large subject matters, a large amount of, you know, very well powered, long yes. period of time. You've studied this versus that control versus experiment. So spoken uh, after speaking with a couple of uh, scientists, friends, right? So what's, you know, what's good science? Good science is lar- large subject matters. Uh, so very well-powered study, you know, experimental control group uh, for as long as possible. You get a conclusion. 
then that study should be replicated somewhere else in some other institution. And then once you get you gather all that information, then you have something to to go by. At least that's what my scientists that's what I learned in scientific methods classes a long time ago, and that's what they would say. Well, that that is very difficult. That 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 is a very yes. uh, difficult uh, situation. I don't even know what you know when that's been done. Um, we know about smoking. Some people poo-poo prospective or observation studies. Well, we know smoking is a problem because of observational studies. So we right. cannot. We there's some meaningful information that come that can come from that. So yeah, when I present this information on nutrients, I said, look, it's science, common sense. And experience that I that I have, yes. um, this notion of holistic but realistic, it, it really isn't a, a, a term that I've coined. But it, it, it didn't happen for me to try to be cute out there with a nice line. It's like, yeah, you got to be realistic. When I and I learned that in my first half of my career, it was through failure. I gave give people programs, and I was like, this is crazy. I can't do this. You know, and exercise they didn't do. And it's like, well, you guys have a discipline problem, don't you? Your willpower is. It's not you. It's it's me. It's the program. is is unrealistic. It's not right. So I've learned from failure that is way beyond, um, way beyond. The, uh, you know, just the science. I'll end with this, and then I want you to uh, uh, take the floor and with final thoughts, Eric. Um, I have a friend with, which I said, look, um, I said you need to do weight resistant exercise. You, you you're about to be fifty, and it doesn't get better. You have to do weight resistance. He's like, look. I said, look. The science, the science is very clear. And I started showing him abstracts. Look at, you know, look at this study. I mean, it shows that it's better for mental health. Look at this study. You know, the stronger you are, it's actually harder for you to die. Look at this study. He said, yeah, that's good, Geo. But if we were to make decisions based on studies, no one would ever smoke cigarettes. And there's a lot of cigarette smokers out there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so. That's real. That's human. That's, you know, real life. And uh, so it's a matter of how you can have the right program in for the right people. Sometimes it uh, can include and does include uh, certain nutraceutical supplements. Anyway, that's that. Eric, thanks again. Final thoughts on, oh, um, I think we want to talk about something actually really important here. If you you don't mind, if you have a couple of more minutes. Sure. Your work with DNA testing in cancer. Uh, so yes. you've, you, you've moved on to something actually really interesting. And actually, I want to see how I can get involved with it. So can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah, it's uh, really a fascinating field. And I'm very excited to be part of yet something else that is going to move the needle in medicine, I think. Mm. So we screen for five cancers in the U.S. now, colon, breast, cervical, lung, and prostate cancer. All of those screenings have been shown at a population level to reduce mortality. They have some drawbacks. Um, The biggest drawback is that despite the fact that they reduce mortality is that we still lose 600,000 people a year in the United States due to cancer. And the main reason for that is that we don't have screening tests for 70% of the cancers that people die from. So about six or seven years ago, a colleague from from my Oncotype days had joined this new company, this startup called Grail, and came to me and said, this isn't a urologic 
tests that we're doing, but would you be interested in participating in a clinical trial? We've developed a blood test that screens for cancer. And I said, yes. And in the back of my mind, I was thinking, wouldn't this be great? We'll find something to replace PSA. Well, it turns out that the we've done many big trials now. The whole clinical program is over 300,000 uh, people in clinical trials that this blood test and others like it that are in development by other companies but not yet commercially available yet can detect multiple different kinds of cancers and the kinds of cancers that we don't screen for now like pancreatic and ovarian which have very high death rates and rare cancers for which we will never be able to design randomized trials to test whether or not screening tests work and so i see this as a huge opportunity to increase the overall cancer detection rate to find cancers earlier and to reduce significantly the number of people who die from cancers in the United States. So it's a paradigm shift. Currently, we screen individuals for cancer. And um, excuse me, currently we screen for individual cancers. We screen for lung cancer. We screen for breast cancer. So we screen for individual cancers. And the paradigm shift that these blood-based cell-free DNA tests are going to allow is to screen individuals for cancers. And that's going to be the future of cancer screening in the near future, in the very near future. So it's, it is commercially available now, and how would patients or people know about it and get yeah, tested? So let me disclose that I am an employee of GRAIL, uh, which has mm-hmm. this lab-developed test, not FDA-approved. We're in deep discussions with FDA about this. Um, that's available on the market. It's called Gallery, G-A-L-L-E-R-I, and it needs to be ordered by a physician. And um, that can be done through your own primary care physician, or you can go to www.gallery.com and request a virtual consult with a physician who is um, a licensed provider to order it for you. They'll send the kit to your home. You can have a home phlebotomist come and draw the blood. It takes about 10 days to get the result back. The result comes back as cancer signal not detected in 99% of people and cancer signal detected in about 1% of people. And the positive predictive value of the test is about 43%. So Mm. that means that about 9 in 20 people with a positive test have cancer. What does that mean? If you take all comers for mammography, the positive predictive value of mammography is 4.5%, which means 1 in 20 women who have a positive mammogram have cancer. With this blood test, it's 9 in 20. So that's one of the performance advantages. If you look at the population level, this will really increase the efficiency of screening. If this were to be used at a population level in repeated cycles once a year, adjacent to standard screening, that's very important. This does not replace standard screening. You can reduce the false positive to true positive ratio from about 43 to 1 to 14 to 1. And that's our model data. Mm -hmm. And we also think we're going to see a significant shift in stage and reduce, by using this test repeatedly, reduce the incidence of stage 4 cancer diagnosis by about 75% and reduce the incidence of stage 3 cancers by about 50%. So there's a lot more work to be done, but it's really an exciting space to be in. You know, I love it, particularly when you think about, you know, pancreatic cancer. Just unfortunately, I'm at an age and stage where, uh, uh, you know, I'm 50 years old, and probably relative to you, you would say, oh, Gio, you're so young. I, I yeah, am, and I you feel are. young. Yeah. Um, but 
there are people my age and just a bit even younger that are just dropping from yes. heart attacks and pancreatic cancer. So um, for from a prank, pancreatic cancer perspective, where once you, you catch it is already late, um, this this particular technology, you know, is a game changer, it sounds like. It is. It will be. Yes. What? Um, so as it relates with prostate cancer, Eric, um, do I want to know that I have prostate cancer? In other words, most, you know, this whole old saying, you know, most people die with it and from it. So do I want to know that I have prostate cancer? Uh, I mean, not yeah. want to know. I only want to know if I have, you know, the type that I should pay attention to and Correct. aggressive type, but then I could do something. So where do you think that's going uh, with, with this particular test? Uh, so um, it's interesting. Urologic cancers. In, so let me say this. The test is based on looking at methylation patterns. Mm -hmm. that um, are shared across all cancers um, in the bloodstream, in cell-free DNA. And then, so the first algorithm of the test is uh, predicting the presence or absence of cancer. The second algorithm is if you have a cancer signal present, it predicts with about 90% accuracy what cancer type it is or what organ system it's in. What we've seen is that um, urologic cancers, unless they're really advanced, don't shed much cell-free DNA into the bloodstream. So the sensitivity of this particular test that I'm talking about for urologic cancers is on the low side. Um, we did see, however, that it does a pretty good job of detecting high-grade Gleason 8 and above prostate cancer, and particularly at advanced stage. It does not detect grade six cancer. And so it's not going to overdiagnose that. So that's one good thing. I would think about this blood test not as a screen for prostate cancer, but as a screen for all cancers or right. almost all cancers. It doesn't detect every cancer. As one of my colleagues at Grail likes to say, people who get cancer can't choose which cancer they get. You don't know what you're going to get. Yeah. And so you have a test that's agnostic to cancer type that can detect it in the in the system. So I would not think of it as a, a adjunct to screening for prostate cancer. It's really an adjunct for screening for cancers that you are at risk at because of your age and other factors, smoking and obesity and family history and genetics and all of that. Yeah, I think the overall arching point is catch, particularly the really bad ones really early. And yes. you probably have a hopefully somewhere close to 100% cure rate if you catch it early enough. That's always the trick. Correct. Um, wonderful. Eric, uh, again, thank you. Final thoughts on great. anything that no, you want to say? No, great <laughs> to see you. Thanks for having me. Nice to see you. Um, is there, um, if there's a way that you want people to get in touch with you, I don't know, maybe to talk about Grail, sure. um, what, what would be the best way? Um, can email me? Probably mm -hmm. it's the easiest way. It's K-L-E-I-N-E. Two zero zero six at gmail dot com. Great, and that that would be that would be. Fun. Hopefully, you don't get a. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Uh, well, you're you're. I still think you're some. I know you're working full time with Grail, but come yes. on, after running a department, that's that's that feels like part time. I mean, yeah, it's, you know, it's it, just it, different. It's it's different. Yeah. It's it's less stressful. It's certainly yeah. less stressful. So. I love it. Yeah. I look forward to seeing you soon, Eric. Thanks, All right, thanks so much for being on. Okay. My pleasure. Our next sponsor partner has a product I use literally every day. I'm talking about AG1. 
you know, I've been using green powders mixed in drinks for a long time. And it has not always been a great experience, right? The powder clumps up a little bit. It tastes horrible. But you know what? You chug it anyway because it's good for you. AG1 changed the game. With In AG1, you have 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source ingredients, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day the right way. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, and energy to help you recover and focus and help you age successfully. To make it easy, AG1 is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Dr. Geo. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash Dr. Geo to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Dr. Geo podcast. You can watch all episodes of this podcast and much more by subscribing to my YouTube channel on youtube.com forward slash Geo Espinoza ND. If you love what you heard today, you can help by leaving a five-star review of the podcast on Apple and Spotify, as each review helps us reach more men who are serious about improving their urological health and how to function better with age. And for the latest research and actionable takeaways in the world of men's health and integrative urology, sign up for my newsletter at drgeo.com. I'll see you next time. And now for a brief disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and we're not forming a doctor-patient relationship through this medium. The use of the information and all links associated with this podcast is at the listener's risk and is not to replace medical advice from a physician or a healthcare practitioner. Lastly, Thoughts and opinions related to this podcast are my own and may not reflect the views of any institution or organization I'm associated with.